The specifics of this was, I wanted a place where senior engineering leaders could share problems and get answers. Where's the one place? Like, what's Stack Overflow for management? And I've not found it, and so I wanted to go build it. Hey, everyone. It's Cotter Brownson, Dev Interrupted Executive Producer. So you might have heard that back in September, we held our first ever live virtual engineering leadership conference, Interact. With over 600 engineers and engineering leaders in attendance, Interact was a big hit with our audience and produced some amazing interviews, like Maria Gutierrez's talk on scaling engineering processes, which has become our biggest episode of all time. So I'm incredibly excited to announce that Interact will be making its return on April 7th. You can check out the whole lineup and register at devinterrupted.com interact, which we'll have in the links below. We hope to see you there. Now, on with today's episode. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to Dev Interrupted. I'm your host, Dan Lines, and today I'm joined by Peter Bell, the founder and CTO at CTO Connection. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Dan, thanks so much for inviting me on. Great to finally get to hang out. Yeah, finally get to hang out. Awesome to have you on the show. Definitely excited to have you here. You have a really interesting background. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and kind of what drew you to the engineering leadership space and where you are today? Well, I think I landed in engineering leadership by accident because like I started off, you know, like a technical, like high school bachelor and master's in computer and electronic engineering. Then I'm like, okay, uh, I'm going to become a therapist. So I did neuro-linguistic programming and Ericksonian hypnotherapy created a sales training company, moved from London to the US. And then back in 1996, I finally got back into tech. I started an interactive ad agency with like, you know, websites and CD-ROMs and tools for salespeople to calculate things on their laptops. And I, that was great. Like the wonderful thing, it's like, I still remember going into like one of these loyal field service companies. And it, seriously, we, we couldn't actually afford to buy but this was back when you had to buy programming languages like Visual Basic 4, and we couldn't afford to buy it. So I got a copy of PowerPoint. I made something where it looked like it was a real CD-ROM catalog, but all I was doing was I was clicking on the buttons, but the buttons were really just part of the image. And then somebody was like, sure, yeah. here's 10 grand to go build that. I'm like, fine, now we can afford the software. So I started programming again. Uh, that was fun. I raised a bunch of money to build million dollar websites for a thousand bucks a month at the Strategy Factory back in 1999. So yes, we invented Squarespace first. Uh, they did a little better at commercializing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> That's so cool. A little bit of everything. And then the engineering leadership, I think it was to scale my impact, right? Because it was great writing code. use just this immediate like tangible thing. Like I've got an idea, I can build this thing in the world. But with engineering leadership, you could actually direct a group of people to write more software than you could ship on your own. Actually, that always, I think, happens with inventions. You have kind of the inventors that do the thing first. They do pretty well. Then there's always someone that comes along and says like, let me perfect this. It's already invented. I just need to make it a little bit better and more scale, right? Something like that. Absolutely. And I think it's like, I mean, it's funny when you see, I mean, like Dropbox, they couldn't get funding because everyone's like, yeah, yeah, we've tried file backup. It doesn't work. It loses money. Turns out Drew Houston managed to figure it out. That's really cool. That's an awesome background. I want to move us to our first topic around different things that a developer could do besides climbing maybe the typical corporate 
uh, ladder. So there's a lot of developers out there who maybe don't realize how many career paths are actually available to them. Sometimes it's easy to, you know, you get a job or you do get a job out of school, you get locked into this idea of, okay, maybe I'm going to just become an engineering team leader or a manager, or maybe a great individual contributor, which is all great, but there's other stuff out there. You've been open about dev advocacy and these other kind of alternative career paths. What are some of the adjacent career paths that developers could go on? I, I think that's a great question, Dan. It's like, so firstly, there are the, as you said, there are the two paths, right? There's the IC path and there's a the management path. And those, at least both of those are there now. At least it always used to be like, hey, if you want to make more money and you know, make your parents proud, then you've got to go become a manager and stop doing the thing you're actually good at, which is writing code. So it's good that we've got the dual track career path now. Yeah, fi finally. I guess you can only be respectful if people report to you. No, we've moved past that. So that's good. <laughs> so I'll give some specific examples as you move into product that somebody who has a solid technical background and moves into product, it's another way of scaling your impact because now you can think about the user experience and the, the flows without having to be like, damn it, I got the semicolon in the wrong place and my tests aren't passing with the new version of the library, right? So it just abstracts your thinking one level higher, but you can still talk thoughtfully about, you know, how are we going to run this in a Kubernetes cluster and how are we going to think about, you know, real-time stream queries against the, the 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 data source, right? So you you get what the geeks are talking about, but you can actually focus on the impact for the users. You know which type of product people that engineering teams like? Ones that used to be developers and can understand when the team comes to them and says, hey, listen, we got to work on this scaling issue before we attack the new feature. Or, hey, this feature is a really, really tough one. This is an easy one. <laughs> People that already know that, engineering teams love them. I, I've seen a lot of successful transitions from, hey, I'm a really good developer. I'm leading a development team to I can be a really great product person. Absolutely. Sure. It's a really nice fit. But then the other thing, so I started uh, writing a blog on, of all the things, Code Fusion was a programming language that was popular uh, in the like late 90s, early thousands. I mean, it's still out there. It's still running an awful lot of like government websites and other things. I remember. And so I started <laughs> a blog on Code Fusion and application generation and code generation and stuff like that. I uh, started presenting at technical conferences around the US and around the world. And then I realized once I got to a certain point that people would pay me to do this. Um, people would pay me thousands of dollars to like, there was one point where I was working with an agency and they're like, oh, big networking company you've absolutely heard of needs a training course on Redis. Uh, can you send me an agenda? And so I like Google Redis, see what it does, look at a few blog posts, download it, install it, play with it, throw together a one day agenda. And they flew me out to California. I taught a one day class and it was great. I get to learn a new technology and I get to teach it a bunch of other people. For a yep. number of years, I was paid just to fly around the world and teach people how to use Git and GitHub, which was great. That's really cool. Yeah. I've never been on that side of it. Like kind of, I don't know if that's considered consultancy or whatever you call it. I've been on the other side where I'm paying someone <laughs> to come in and talk about Redis or whatever. <laughs> and I'm always saying to myself, this is really expensive, but we're still paying for it. So you can probably make a living doing that. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I mean, look, there's, I mean, like real numbers, like they're, you know, large companies will write a check for 10 or 15,000 bucks for a single day training for 30 engineers. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes they'll pay travel and accommodation on top of that. So you don't yeah. have to book that many days a year uh, to be making a pretty good living. Right. Yeah. Even like, so at the last startup that I was at CloudLock, I think we won some startup grant money something like that, but we had to use it on training or making our people better. So we had like 60 or 80 K to spend and yeah, we spent it. So yeah, that's, that's a good one. What, what else do you got other options? Well, so one thing I'd make the distinction there, there's, um, there's a consultant versus employee, right? I mean, we assume like, Mm -hmm. oh, I need to go get a job. You can, you can also uh, parcel out your time. And it's anything like, you know, if you're on the leadership track, you can be a fractional VP of engineering, a fractional CTO on the individual yeah. contributor side, right? I mean, it's like the, the the challenge with consulting is figuring out a way to differentiate and position yourself so you're not making like three bucks an hour on Upwork. Uh, I see. Right? Yeah. You, you need to have a, There's a lot of that. that differentiates and positions you. And that's usually where two things align. Like, so for example, my career was like stepping stones. I learned Code Fusion. That was great. But lots of people knew Code Fusion. But mm. it's a dynamically typed language running on the Java virtual machine. So then I started doing meta programming and I wrote a dependency injection framework. Like back in the day, everyone used something called Code Spring, which was like 10,000 lines of Java like code, which was awesome. But then I wrote a little library that did the same thing, still, you know, the same kind of like idea of dependency injection and aspect oriented programming stuff in 400 lines of code, because you could do that with a dynamically typed language and recursion and stuff. And I started to get known for that. So software product line, code generation, domain specific languages. And once you start to put a couple of these things together, you suddenly become like, it goes from, are you going to make three bucks an hour to fix my tailwind CSS to, wow, we'll pay you 500 bucks an hour to go be an expert at this. That's cool. Yeah. Did you do the 400 lines of code? Like, was that all for free to kind of build your brand or did you actually make that a product or something? Great question. I actually just did it for fun. I was like, wait a second. I don't understand recursion and I don't really get aspect oriented programming or DI. Like I didn't really understand dependency injection, but I figured maybe if I write a library that implements it, then I'll understand how the heck it works. That's awesome. What it reminds me of, I mean, you've been a founder, uh, I'm a founder, and there's a lot of successful dev founders. What developers are able to do kind of inherently is create stuff, invent stuff. Sometimes it sounds scary to make a step to say, oh, I'm a founder and it means all this stuff. No, like go create something cool like you did. Now I can use that as leverage to build myself or use your creative talents. That's my, probably my best advice. Seriously. Yeah. And and it's and there are so many ways of doing it. Like some people like I happen to like telling stories in front of people. One of my my most fun I ever had, I presented at the Yao conferences, which is a series of conferences in Australia. And it's great. They like fly you to Australia, you know, you get all expenses paid. It was a lovely experience. But basically in each conference, I would stand up with a terminal window open and say, now we're gonna learn about Git. And I just spent an hour in a terminal showing people, you know, Rebase and Rebase Interactive and how and when to use feature branches and other. And it was like awesome. And you could just tell this great story. So you can tell stories, you can write, or you can code. But in any way, if you can find a way to differentiate yourself and start to build a name or a niche, suddenly your options transform from how the heck am I going to make rent this month to which opportunity am I going to pick this month? That's really cool. 
I have a few others that I can add in here. Go, over, uh, go for it. It's all uh, along the same line. So like even at like Linear B today, right? So we're, we're making some interesting tools for developers. Um, and so we're looking for a dev advocate. Been a developer, can really understand the tool and understand what it's like to be a developer, maybe work with the APIs of it a bit and go and present it and write about it and interact with developer community. It's kind of like this blend customer success marketing developer role. It's a great, great role. So that's one, one that I want to put out there. And I got two more. So the other thing that I have see, seen people do, it's not necessarily a huge jump, but kind of join the office of the CTO. So CTO's office and what you can do in there, if you have a little bit of business acumen, hey, I'm going to look for partnerships with other companies and maybe we can connect our APIs together. And I mean, that's a, that's a pretty cool career jump. I've seen that be successful. And the last one, a little bit more of a step, but because a lot of the developers maybe don't want to do sales, but there is an interesting role, sales engineer. Like I, you gotta be a, a true, especially at our company, again, linear B, you gotta be a real engineer, but you can go on a sales call. You can present yourself and talk engineering stuff. Hey, this is how we're going to get, I mean, that's people pay a lot for that role. It's a very unique role. Well, I, again, because uh, it's this, it's this intersection between understanding computers and being able to speak to a human. And right. but it's it's a relatively rare trait, so it's really nice. And yes, sales engineering is awesome because what you do is you get to go hang out with other geeks, understand their problems. And again, it's a leverage opportunity because it's rather than like, okay, let's go write the code. I'll be back in six months once it works. You're like, hey, let's talk at a high level architecture. What are your big pain points? What are the issues with your engineering flows and workflows? And how might this tool or this product or this system allow you to reduce cycle time, improve efficiency. And so you can help somebody to think through their problems very quickly and have way more impact than just writing the code. So if I, I'm listening to this pod and I'm saying, okay, some of this stuff that Peter's talking about, like I want to go try or I'm, I'm interested, how do I take a first step or dabble? What do I do? I think that's a great question. So uh, I think it depends upon which way you're trying to go. But the, the short answer is, firstly, do it. Not like, hey, I'm going to quit my job and go become a sales engineer or start a company or become a consultant, but do a bit of it. Like if you want to be a sales engineer, can you connect more closely with the customer success team within your org? Or uh, yeah. if you want to be a dev advocate, can you write some blog posts? Can you give some talks at local community meetups? Almost every meetup is desperate for speakers. And if you can help them by filling some content, you don't have to know everything in the world. Pick one interesting thing you learned about this library and how you're able to do something cool with it and just do a 20 minute like lunch and learn style talk. And that way you get to feel out whether you enjoy it and you're starting to build a reputation as somebody who can do the thing. I will say, like, double down on your point, do not underestimate what your internal company needs. Like the support team or success team would probably die to have an amazing engineer come on a support call and talk with a customer. Hey, here's what's really happening behind the scenes. This is how we're going to fix it. I'm going to fix it for you. I just wanted to talk to you about like that's amazing customer service so you know go to your your success support listen to a sales call like i think they'll be more welcoming than you would maybe think 
Absolutely. So you've said something like the future of community is aggregating wisdom. What do you mean by that? So if you think about it, when you go to a lot of communities right now, we're reinventing the wheel. So you go to the same mailing list or you go to the same group and you ask the same question somebody else did six months ago. Now, it's a little, some of this already exists. Like for a lot of developer topics, it's easy. The answer is you Google it. It takes you to the Stack Overflow page. You cut and paste the code, change the variable names and it works. But there are lots of places where, where that doesn't work. Like what is, where's the Stack Overflow for engineering leaders? Hey, so I've got three devs in Singapore uh, one sexually harassed another, but the one who did that has the only copy of the credentials for the database and the data system. Um, what do I do? Your lawyers are probably going to suggest you don't put that on Stack Overflow, especially with an identifying name, right? It's like, so where do you... That's like a real life problem. And one that there isn't a Stack Overflow for. So yeah. there are still many communities where there isn't that aggregate data easily available online. And the opportunity, I think, for communities is to go beyond just being like a place where you can ask questions to be a place where there is a repository of previously asked questions that are managed, updated, curated until eventually there's almost like a, a guidebook of, of a set of best practices. And it's only going to be a 60% solution. There's always going to be, yeah, but we've got this weird situation. Be like, okay, ask a question, but at least you've got a, a context or a starting point of some of the possibilities rather than just everyone having to reinvent the wheel every time someone asks the same question. So you're, let's reiterate, you're the founder of CTO Connection. So you built this incredible community. Um, what did you want it to be as a community? And like, what, you know, what is your belief? What is the CTO Connection? So, so the, the, the hypothesis, the, there are two components. The, the specifics of this was, I wanted a place where senior engineering leaders could share problems and get answers. Where's the one place? Like what stack overflow for management? And I've not found it, and so I wanted to go build it. Another way of looking at it is it's minimizing the cycle time between discovery and distribution. Like Dan, you run a team, right? So you probably learned something in the last month about running a team, maybe about hiring, maybe about interviewing, maybe about running one-on-ones more effectively. You've learned something, but you've got no particular reason to be like, let me go write a blog post and make sure that everyone finds it. I'm going to like run a marketing campaign. It, that doesn't help you. But imagine if there was an organization that would work with you to just like, hey, we're just going to do an interview. We're going to get your wisdom, document it, put it into this space where people can find it and distribute it to people who need it to minimize the time from, again, new ideas coming out to them being distributed widely to the general population. It's the old, like, you know, the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. And I think that's true about wisdom as well. Honestly, I can truly relate a lot of the, I mean, one reason you're here, a lot of the reason that we founded Dev Interrupted, this community, there really isn't you know, uh, us, like you say, a stack overflow for managers, team leaders, people that are inspired to grow their career. So what I would say also to, to the audience, yeah, I have writ written some blog posts and man, they get a surprising amount of views. Like I, I had no idea, 50,000, 100,000 reads, that kind of thing, because there's not as many people out there talking about these hard hard problems that aren't specific to 
I'm having trouble with Python and this is what I need to get done, right? It's like, it's more, I don't want to say cerebral, but there's, it's a, it's not like perfectly technical in the code. Um, so, you know, you, you'll probably vouch for this. If you are someone that has that experience and want to go speak, yeah, maybe CTO connection is a great place to go. There's, there, there are these outlets there. So if I'm a CTO or a VP of engineering and I want to become better, I, I want to be a better leader. Where should I, I, I assume CTO Connections are a good place to go, but what should I do like if I'm trying to improve myself? So I think at a high level, I really like the model of finding a community. Look, there are lots of great books on engineering leadership, and it's perfectly valid to, to work through those, and you'll, you'll, you'll learn from each one. At the same time, sometimes just having a group of other people hanging around that have similar challenges, have similar problems that you can bounce things off of, we all learn through making mistakes. But we learn a lot quicker through other people's mistakes. So I'll try to learn from mistakes other people have already made rather than making them all again yourself. The way that I kind of think about that is you have to make space for yourself to actually take the time. So one thing that's hard being a VP or a CTO is like, if at least for me, when I was, it feels like I didn't have any time. Right. Like everyone wants something from me. I don't have time. Step one to me is like make some space for yourself to go and join a community. Now there's different communities out there. Like one of them that I was in for a bit. Yeah. It's like, you know, 10 to 15 people meeting once a month for two hours, CTOs, VPs, everyone gets drinks delivered to their door. Because it's all remote, you have a drink and you talk about real problems. This is what's happening to me at work right now. Like, has anyone been through this? I need help. It's, it's very, I don't know, there's nothing else like it. You can't get that from just reading a book. Let's put it that way. And that's it. It's the ability to tailor the wisdom to the, the situation you're in right now in your context. And, and there's a really interesting trade-off because you said 10, 15 people, which is great. Like the whole idea of mastermind groups, I think is magical. And it's something we'll probably eventually do at CTO Connection because you have this group of we often do like, I, I used to run mastermind groups for another organization and we'd have between six and 10 people meet for an hour, uh, for three hours once a month, like this big kind of meeting. And it was yeah. really a chance to dive into your problems. The, op the opportunity with a mastermind group is you build deep trust and you're willing to talk, you'll be vulnerable and talk about the hard things. The challenge is there's only 10 other people there. So the odds of them having the right answer for you is lower. So it's interesting that any given community, like uh, there are CTO clubs I'm involved with that lock it out at the Dunbar number and say, look, we only want 150 participants, so we all know and trust each other. And then there's, you know, the interwebs where you can put anything out, but the quality of content is extremely variable. So with any given community, you're always balancing reach, how many people are there so that somebody has, a, has the wisdom I need with trust. I'm throwing this out to 10,000 people. Do I really want them all to know that we've got this, you know, potential legal issue coming up or whatever it is? And mm -hmm. so like one thing with CTA World Connection we're trying to do is create a meta platform where then you can have big communities and small so that then you yeah. can go to the right community for the level of trust you need for the problem you're trying to solve. That's really cool. I mean, and even if you're, so I, like I was saying, I was in a smaller community. Mm -hmm. And these were people, yeah, again, 10 to 15. And the way that I got into it is I came in kind of as a speaker. There was a topic that one of them put on the table and it, the topic was essentially, how do I use 
how do I be more data-driven as an engineering leader? They found me. I wrote blogs about it. Actually, one, one of them was a customer of Linear B. So the CTO, he reached out to me and said, hey, would you want to present? I have this CTO group. Would you want to come present? And so that's how I got involved. So that's the other thing. Even if you don't know the answer to the problem within that 10 uh, people, you can put a topic out there, go find someone, go find Peter, bring, bring Peter in. Yeah, let's have a, a conversation. There's a lot of people better than me at it. But it, what's great is like something <laughs> we do now is like I know people who run CTO clubs in Seattle, New York, LA, Denver, Atlanta, a bunch of different places. And one of the things I'll sometimes do is like they'll reach out to me, be like, hey, we need a speaker on this topic. And because we've had, you know, probably many, many hundreds of presentations and speakers over the last seven years, eight years, we're in a really good position to make those connections. So yeah, it's, it's a, definitely a great way to go. What's the distinction between building a community within a company or your company versus building a community like outside the company? Well, I think the important thing to realize that both of them are great things to do. It's important, you know, whether you are doing this for your team, like you're building internal intentional learning communities and lunch and learns and stuff or, or groups or uh, guilds that focus on particular topics or areas, uh, the thing you got to remember is that that disappears when you leave the company. I mean, like you, right. you might still go for a drink with some of the people afterwards, but in general, once you leave the company, that's gone. Uh, right. And the nice thing about uh, the other thing is that by its nature, whether you're building or attending a community within a company, some unspoken part of the remit of that community is to help to advance the agenda of that company. I mean, Dan, you'd be right. pretty unhappy if there was a community within your org that was persuading everyone to go work for Meta instead, right? It's like, wait a minute. That would be weird. That would just yeah. be weird. That'd be <laughs> But there is a point in time where maybe a given person would be better off moving from one company to another. So having a community, that a long-lived community outside of the workplace, in addition to community workplaces, just gives you that support, especially when you're going through transitions or thinking about them. Have you seen that? So if we're talking about like an engineering community within your company, so I'm an engineering leader. I'm a dev leader, I'm a VP or CTO, and it's within my company. Have you seen a certain style of community that works better than another? For example, you mentioned a lunch and learn, but have you seen something that like, because the key for me is that it doesn't fizzle away and like die after two times or something like that. Absolutely. And uh, so there, there's a guy, we actually just had a, a summit and we had Marco Gaganto, who's probably best known for the fact that he built Twitter U. So he had this mm. uh, Android dev training company, got acquired by Twitter, uh, I think back when Rafi Krikorian was VP engineer in there. And ever since now, what he does is he helps companies like LinkedIn and Netflix to do something that he calls tech enablement. But it's really to say, wait a minute, the hard part isn't teaching people Android. The hard part is teaching people how we use Android or what our stack is, especially within huge companies like LinkedIn and Netflix that have these incredibly complex systems. And what he says is that the heart of this it, it, tech enablement is making it easy. Uh, when the, he was at Twitter, I think something like 10% of the engineers gave at least one talk, a lunch and learn. But the reason they did was he created a system 
where all you do is show up. He would manage the meeting invites. He would help you to think about the topic. He would connect the audiences. He would record it so that they were enabling to make it super easy for engineers to share their wisdom. So I think a lot of this is about putting the systems and and incentives in place, right? Put it on the OKR for the engineers. Like, what did you do to give back to your team and your community and track and manage that? So I think it's the incentives and the enablement are the things that make it easier to make that kind of learning community sustainable. Yeah, that that's interesting. Let's dive into that a, a little bit more because I think a, a topic that's on a lot of our listeners' minds is, okay, I am trying to build my professional career um, and I want to make my internal team successful. So it's mostly made up of developers. What are the kinds of learning strategies that I should be thinking about for my team when I'm thinking about making my own team better at my organization? I know one thing that you just mentioned was like, it always has to pertain back to how we're using the thing, okay, or a tool, but what else do you got for us there? So I think in terms of uh, thinking about creating learning programs within an org, if you want to keep your devs leveling up, firstly, you've got to accept that it is a cost and it's going to take time and you've got to invest in that. If it's like, hey, we want to make sure that you have lifelong learning, but we got to do a death march for the next two weeks. And then in two weeks, well, one more week. And then it's like, well, just till the end of the quarter and then just till Q2. You've got to have the time and the space, just like you have to pay down technical debt. You have to support learning uh, for your teams, because otherwise, if you if you don't give it the time, it's never going to happen. Once you give it the time, you've got to think about different learning styles. So some people really want an instructor. Other people just want to watch a video at home. Some people want to do cohort-based education where there's either synchronous, like you're all on the Zoom call or all in the room together, or asynchronous cohorts where you're all going through weekly, but there's like a Slack or a Discord or some other place where you can share your challenges and problems. You probably want to put uh, office hours in place so that somebody who has domain expertise is available at specific times and people can just drop in and kind of like answer the questions they have. I mean, in many ways, you're building uh, what would look like a university program, but just making it accessible. And then be really thoughtful about stuff like spaced repetition. Just because I learned something six months ago doesn't mean I'll I'll retain it unless I I engage with it multiple times. And also be really thoughtful about uh, creating structures where, again, you can kind of share and persist that knowledge so people can engage with it over time. Have you seen leaders assign the program or the management of the program to someone else, either in the engineering organization or bring someone in? Because I think that structure and someone that's like making it happen, it seems like that's one of the most important things. Like, what have you seen companies do there? Uh, that That's great. So again, like what I was talking with Marco the other day, he was talking about this idea of a tech enablement maturity model. Okay. And the idea is like, look, you've got like, five devs right on a startup. Right now, all you need to do is ship features and hit product market fit because otherwise you're not going to be there next year anyway. So you've got to hit a certain scale. But you know, even once you've got 15, 20, 30 engineers and there are these things that they need to be sharing with each other, what you probably want to do is find one of your EMs, like maybe one of your engineers. If you've got 20 people on your team, maybe you're the CTO stroke VPE, you've got two or three EMs like running the teams. Find one that's passionate about learning and teaching and tech enablement 
and just be like, hey, would you mind organizing the lunch and learn to make sure like every Thursday someone's here and that we've got a physical space or we got a Zoom room set up and like we video it, we archive the videos, we have a Slack channel, moderate that, make sure it's not crazy and just kind of like cajole people like turning up. So just start by doing that. So step one is somebody who's already got a day job, an engineering manager on a small team, maybe a director on a bigger team where you've got, you know, 50, 100, 200 people, that's the the point in time where, where you start it. But then at some point in time, it grows beyond that. So often what you'll find is somebody like a TPM, like a technical program manager, they don't have to be a programmer, but they have to be technical enough to understand what these things are. And then maybe they will work part-time and then maybe eventually they start to work full-time on how do we build out and scale these programs? How do we do a better job of persisting and being able to search and access historic information? And how do we think about updating the the documents we have? Because the problem isn't just documenting things, but also making sure that they don't just wither on the vine and become out of date. And then until eventually you get to the point where I, I was uh, working with MongoDB on something a while back and they had a whole team. They had like a team of people specifically designed for building and managing learning programs within their engineering wow. or according yeah. to the CTO. Right. So to to try to summarize, you know, it's a little bit about always having awareness of where your company's maturity is at. You know, are are you on the grind trying to make a startup happen at day zero versus, hey, you can still be at a startup and be a few years in and you have your series A and series B. Yeah, that's time. You can grow your team skills at that time. So kind of kind of know where you're at. And then the other thing that I just want to make sure that we lock in here, you mentioned different learning strategies. What I've heard and correct me if I'm wrong, some people want to be hands on. Let me open up my laptop. Let's all program together or go step by step. Some people want to hear a lecture or so, something like that. And then some people want to work asynchronously. Are those the top three to start with or what are the, where do I start? I, it's exactly that, right? I mean, some people like listening to podcasts. Some people want to watch the video. Some people would rather just read the transcript. Some people want to be hands-on. Some people want to do it as a as a group collaborative exercise. Some people want to pair with somebody with a little more experience or even like novice-novice pairing. Let's the both of us just like open up a laptop and, and start hacking on this thing and see if we can figure it out. And it's allowing people to get to competence in their own ways rather than saying everyone shall listen to six hours of lectures and fill out the test at the end. If I'm someone within an engineering organization, again, I can be a developer, but maybe in a leadership position. And I have to justify this time to my, let's say, CEO. Why does this matter? How do I justify that this time matters for training and grip? It's a great question. And the answer changes a little bit as the scale of the company changes. In the early days, the first thing is you're just increasing your bus number. If you've got one DevOps person on a team of eight, what happens if they take a job at another company? You're like, I literally don't know how my infrastructure works. Like, I, I think they scribbled some stuff down and I'm, I'm sure there was a repo somewhere with like some Terraform stuff. I have no idea what's where. Uh, so day one is just getting rid of that bus number, making sure that at least three people have to quit at the same time before your company goes out of business. As the size of the organization scales, that becomes less of an issue because now you have multiple people in DevOps, multiple people doing front end, so it becomes less of an issue. But now it's just simple efficiency and competence. 
Uh, it can be discovery. Like, I mean, in the microservices world, there's like, you know, we, we might have 4,000 engineers reinventing the same microservices because there's no good service discovery mechanism to find out that we already have an integration with Twitter or whatever it is that we need. But generally, it's ensuring that all of your team can move as fast as possible by understanding the context of your systems and how it's supposed to work. Totally makes sense. What I've learned justifying things to CEOs, here, here's a few things that they care about, right? So it's like existential business crisis. Hey, if we don't train other people in this and this person leaves, we're not going to have a product that functions anymore. <laughs> so that's existential. Other things they care about, money, <laughs> saving money. Hey, we're working at 70% utilization of our developers. This is how much their salary is. It's millions of millions of dollars. I want to get us up to 90% utilization because we're, we're training them, right? And then the, the other thing that I've seen worked is, remember when we had a really big feature and we missed the deadline, we didn't deliver it on time? It's because we weren't trained up enough. Do you want to, you know, you got to say it in a nicer way, but do you want to hit features on time? These are some ways to get through, hey, let's create some space to train. And the one other thing I'd say is throw in a budget. So it's kind of like tech debt. There are two broad strategies to handling tech debt. And, and I think they're both valid. One is like, look, uh, I heard a great presentation. I think it was Ben Wolf, a uh, wonderful engineering leader, who basically said, look, I never talk about technical debt. What I talk about is latency or I talk about the capacity to scale. I talk about the specific business problem that we are solving by reducing, you know, or uh, cycle time for new feature delivery. Our code base is a huge mess. I, I was at a conference in the UK years ago, and it was one of these things where they gave uh, a JavaScript and asked you to refactor something. And then they give you a party popper, like pull the party popper once you've added this new feature. And it was weird because there was like 40 people in the room, 20 on one side, 20 on the other. And like one party popper went on the left, then another on the left, then five more on the left, still none on the right. In the end, like 18 of the party poppers on the left went off and nothing on the right. And then, then they gave the reveal, which was like, look, all of you had JavaScript code that did the same thing, but there was more technical debt on the right-hand side of the room. So none of you were actually able to do new feature development. Uh, so that was a, a great kind of like really tangible experience of how much technical debt can cost you. And the same thing with learning, right? So sometimes you just put a budget aside and make sure you have the time to do it. Yeah, I, I don't think our listeners necessarily need to know this anymore, but I'll, I'll say it again, because at Linear B, we're big into reducing cycle time, reduce your cycle time. As you reduce your cycle time, you can deliver more features essentially for your business and CEOs like that. So anything that's about reducing cycle time will always uh, translate really well. Peter, we always kind of like to ask a, a little bit of a interesting or thought provoking and fun question around leadership or different like business strategies. So let me hit you with this one. Would you rather have 1,000 six figure clients or one nine figure client? <laughs> That's a great question, Dad. That one's the easiest one in the world for me. I remember years ago when I started my first business and all my friends were like, oh my God, you're so brave. You're starting a business. You're not just like taking a job and like, dude, I've got about 25 clients. You've got one person paying your bills. If that one person fires you, you're out of luck. I got to get fired by like 15 of my clients before it's a real problem. 
So every day I'll take a thousand six-figure clients because, you know, 900 of them would have to fire me for me to go out of business versus the one 10-figure client I'm always desperately hoping I don't annoy them too much. Yeah, that, that's the way that we we always think about it. And I always think about it as well. It's kind of like a um, the more clients that you have, even, even if they're paying less, it provides stability and health either to your yourself, if you're like working independently or your business. Having one client that kind of owns you in every way, shape, and form is usually not healthy. One huge, huge client will inherently have a lot of power over you. Hey, Peter, I need you to work the weekend. Are you going to say no? Do you want to lose millions of dollars? No, I'm going to be there on the weekend. So I'm right there with you. All right, Peter, thanks so much for coming on on the pod. It's been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for all of your uh, great advice today. Dan, thank you so much for taking the time. And it was great to hear you dropping some poets of wisdom too. Lots of fun. (laughs) Thanks so much. We always like to give just a little opportunity for our guests to close out the pod with some type of call to action. We talked about it a little bit, CTO Connection, really awesome thing that you founded. Can you tell us a little bit more about it or how our listeners could get involved? Absolutely. We're going to be upgrading our website in about two weeks. But in the meantime, just come to cdlconnection.com. Right now, we're primarily focused on direct level and higher engineering leaders, but we're just about to be launching uh, TNG Next Generation. So if you have any interest in engineering leadership at all, come along, sign up, and we will connect you with community and resources for free. Awesome. So if you're interested in getting into a great community, check out CTO Connection. We'll include the link in the description. Also, a quick reminder for our listeners, if you haven't already rated and reviewed the show on your podcasting app of choice, particularly Apple Pods, please do so. Reviews are really crucial for our show to get discovered. Also, be sure to join the Dev Interrupted Discord community. That's where we keep this type of conversation going all week long. I also want to say thank you to the more than 2,000 of you who are now subscribed to our weekly interruption newsletter. We bring you articles from the community, inside information on weekly pods, and the first look at the Interact 2.0 conference on April 7th, 2022. Again, we have all the information in the description below. And Peter, thank you again for coming on the pod. Dan, thanks so much. Have a great day.